Hello, and welcome to the Impact Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry and how some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here is your host, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. Today we have an extra very special guest, Allison Warner. Allison is the Senior Vice President at Balboa Retail Partners. How are you, Allison? I am lovely. Thank you. Excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Feels good to be asked. <laughs> yes. No one ever asked me to be on their podcast. I always have to do the asking. One time, I was on one podcast. It felt really good. People were asking me questions. Um, so, where uh, where are you located right now? I know where you're located. Right you tell, tell the world where, where you're located. I am currently in the Sunset District of San Francisco, about three blocks from the beach. It's uh, June bloom in full effect. So, I'm bundled up in a sweater, even though everyone everywhere else in the world is nice and warm and sunny. 30 degrees. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and wet. Yes, and wet. That is true. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, can you tell the world about Balboa Retail Partners, please? Yeah. So um, Balboa Retail Partners is actually based out of Los Angeles, California, and it's a fund-based private equity group that has been together since 2011, and we invest in retail properties um, all over the country nationwide. Um, I think we're currently in about 18 different states since they uh, have been formed. Um, they've acquired about 3 million square feet total in retail. Um, our investors are all college endowments. And oh, wow. really, yeah. our goal is uh, to invest in value-add opportunities with midterm um Lease, lease termouts, you know, relatively unencumbered from a lease standpoint. Mm -hmm. And we take a step back and we're the group that's willing to say, what should this be? Should it stay retail? Should it not? Um, and where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? <laughs> that's the <laughs> question of the day in the world of retail. Hence why it's nice to be asked. Most people don't, you know, think retail's dying. So I am fascinated <laughs> by retail. Um, I think it's probably, I find it the most creative asset class at this moment. Um, so I like to see, I love what's, I see different, well, we just were talking about them all. We live not that far from each other and you're, you're talking about a, a place I have been to multiple times and the transformation that's taking place there and how it's changed, you know, now it's a destination Mm -hmm. as opposed to just some old, it's still an old mall, but it also has a destination component as well. And like my son, who's 10 and I, we love going there. Um, I was at another uh, place in, in the East Bay two weeks ago or something like that. Where it was like, yeah, families were out. It was, a, it, was a it was more like a park that happened to have stores around it mm -hmm. type of thing. And I love yep. how that's happening. Um, they're, they're tricking us, uh, but it's working. And because uh, they have cool, like, you know, places to get ice cream and stuff like that. Um, anyhow, so, yeah, we, what what's happening in the retail world? 
uh, it's, it's definitely not, you know, I grew up going to strip malls as a kid. It's where we hung out. Um, what it doesn't seem to be that that's not, does that still happen today? Do, do kids still hang out at strip malls? Sometimes I think I, I worked on one of the last ground up greenfield retail developments. I mean, it obviously not the last, but it feels like one of, one of the last, um, retail developments here in the Bay Area, which is Persimmon Place out in Dublin, anchored by Whole Foods, Nordstrom Rack, um, and Home Goods. And it's about 150,000 square feet. It was the first project I worked on when I joined Regency Centers back in 2014. And it's a beautiful project and it's highly successful. Mm. Um, since then, I don't think I've looked at a single ground up development deal. Um, everything is pretty much looking at these old strip centers that you're talking about and saying, well, do we need this much retail anymore? I think um, headlines like to say that retail's dying, malls are dying. I like to say it is under demolished. We don't need as much square feet as we have yeah. anymore. Um, and, you know, sure, you know, the omni channel has its huge effect on brick and mortar retail. And even in the last year with COVID, we've seen a huge increase in people um, buying more online, you know, learning to use Instacart, for example, to get their groceries delivered. Um, it's just really easy and convenient when you can't leave your house during a shelter in place to have Amazon deliver everything. Uh, but I think the good news is that you saw a lot of these brick and mortar retailers that maybe weren't as connected to delivery or, you know, all the different channels through which their customers might want to shop, they've sort of been forced to catch up and figure out ways um, to execute sales through all the different channels that are available to their customers. Um, so I think that's really good to see. But but more interesting than that to me is coming out of COVID, we're really seeing what um, social creatures we are and the, the easiest and the best way to go sort of re-engage and get that out of our systems right now is through retail. And what you just described, I like to think of as we've almost gone full circle. You know, old school strip centers with a huge parking lot isn't where you want to go spend your time after you've been holed up at home. Right. You want to go to a town center. You want to go be surrounded by community. You want to be entertained. Um, you want to be outside. You want to eat good food, hear good music. Yeah. And so... That's the trend, right? That's what's happening now. Um, and are you able to take a lot of these old places and turn them into that? I mean, and does that take a lot of convincing for the tenants? Because like, who's, who spends that money to turn that into create what you're looking to create? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think that the you know the shopping center in San Mateo that we were just talking about, what they did is they took an old Sears, and you know Sears boxes don't really exist anymore. And there's a lot of, you know, these, you know, couple hundred thousand square feet anchor tenants um, that over time haven't survived. And these boxes are either repurposed by kind of backfilling and plugging with three or four or five, what we call junior anchors. Um, that was sort of the thing to do over the past 10 years. And I think um, now moving forward, people are looking more at tearing those spaces down and creating these town centers. And then, bringing in really cool food and beverage and retail tenants, you know, around sort of a, um, a green, a fountain, a stage, you know, some sort of place for people to hang out and spend their time and feel really comfortable being there for a while. Um, mm. And then, you know, obviously spending money at the retail stores. So <laughs> that's the thing. Do they actually spend the money? 
I mean, I go there. I don't, I mean, I'll spend money at the movie theater and the, uh, the bowling alley. I don't necessarily go to like the West Elm or whatever, or like, yeah, I guess they have, te- you know, some of them, I think Tesla, uh, I, I don't spend, I don't really spend money at retail stores anymore. besides like activities. Yeah. You know, that's the easiest thing to say that cannot be replaced with online shopping is you can't have an experience online. Like you can't going to a movie theater, going bowling. Um, you know, I just, checked out a, a VR shop that backfilled the, you know, a former just basic retail shop inside. I was just at that VR shop. Yeah. And what did you think? It was cool. I mean, my 10 year old and I went and, uh, we checked it out and we went there and, uh, you know, I heard about it cause just through people in the retail world that I know. And, uh, it was great. I mean, it was definitely like something different, something to do, you know, it's like you, how many times can you go to the park and, you know what I mean? It's like it was cool. Like I love all these different experiences you can have. Yeah. It's great. It's like a dad with a kid. <laughs> Definitely. And and I think though, you know, the the hope is is that maybe you need to wait to get in for your time slot, or maybe you need to wait until you know your movie starts and and you roam and you cruise and you quote unquote window shop. And that's where I think um, a lot of retailers realized through COVID that absent the brick and mortar stores. Um, you know, the sales didn't necessarily translate one for one with the brick and mortar store being closed. And so therefore all the sales were replaced online. That's still a very important factor, but perhaps it's becoming more of a marketing tool, more more of a billboard, so to speak, a place for people to go and touch and feel and see what the trends are and see what they like. They may not buy something that day, but then they might go home and you know, get advertised on Instagram and you can click and buy on Instagram or you might actually go back to the website and buy a week later, or maybe wait for the sale. But I think it's it's all much more integrated today. And so there's still a very important place um, for physical brick and mortar retail in our world. Yeah, actually, when we went to uh, we went to Dave and Buster's in the East Bay, and then we're hanging out in like the uh, part, I don't know what they call it, the green, mm-hmm. the common area, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we actually did. I, 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 we did go to Barnes and Noble. I did buy a book. I love work. to hear that. Bookstores, they're coming back. Everything's coming back. I know. I miss it. I love books. I spent a lot of time at bookstores as well growing up. It was great. Yeah. I think they were like the more communal, before like these communal areas at these town centers, bookstores were like the town centers. Like you could just hang out for hours at Barnes and Noble and like drink <laughs> right. coffee and read, right? And maybe not buy anything. Maybe not buy anything. <laughs> Same Usually, idea. Usually not buy anything. Right, right. Um, it's it was kind of like the new library, except you could actually drink coffee and talk inside. Didn't have to be quiet. But I I've seen some very interesting presentations on demographics and generational studies over the years, and and one of the most interesting takeaways that that I found was that this idea that. Um, Generations, we really do go full circle and you're starting to see the younger generations actually want to go back to malls and walk around or they want to go buy something in the store that day because to them, they've yeah had a phone in their hand, everything at their fingertips their entire life. And a two-day delivery from Amazon might not be fast enough for them. They'll do all the research, they'll figure out what they want to buy, and then they go to the store and they want to buy it that day. And, and yeah. that's a little bit of the gap that will be interesting to see how retailers can keep up with that. You know, can they keep the right inventory in store to sort of satisfy the uh, 
you know, Amazon Prime one day delivery isn't fast enough anymore. I want to go get it today at the store. Well, what stores have what you want that day anymore? Um, and also, yeah, I mean, a lot of stores look like showcases for places like you know, mm-hmm. they have Tesla or like what's the uh, eyeglass store, um, the one that you order online or whatever. Warby Parker. Warby, I just saw that this yeah. morning that they are opening like 30 or 50 new, new uh, brick and mortar stores this year or something along those lines. Um, so, yeah, it seems like you go there, you kind of check it out, you try them on. Maybe you buy it there, but then you go home and you do it. Um, and what about home? Well, okay, home prices in the suburbs are like blowing up <laughs> like crazy, right? Right? Yeah. Like you can't buy a house in the suburbs, at least in the Bay Area or like New Jersey. It's like it's going crazy. Everyone's moving to the, the suburbs again. Right. And so... You know, when we were all living in the city, it's much easier to get kind of a communal vibe because you're just walking around the streets. But when, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and it's frankly, it's where culture goes to die, right? Community goes mm-hmm. to die mm-hmm. unless you like have like block parties or something like that. And, uh, right. you know, so is that kind of with that, is there, a, have you found an increase or like just because this is actually happening right now, right? I mean, people are, this is not, it's pretty new. These people are like flooding to the, the suburbs, I think. Um is that affecting, like, is retail trying to catch up? Like, holy smokes, we've got, like, all these families who are probably, like, in their, you know, 40s or whatever, and they still don't want to just sit at home and do nothing. They want to go out and do stuff, but there's really nothing to do. They don't want to go to the city, right? <laughs> so now, like, you got to create things to do for these people. Is that, is that yes. what retail is doing? That's that's such an interesting um, interesting comment. So, you know, if you look at it, you know, it's using the Bay Area as an example, and you look at the areas that are most impacted by these home prices, um, and where things shot up most quickly, and you think about what amenities are provided to their community, and you look at Lafayette has a really great downtown commercial center. You look at the entire peninsula, and every single city has a pretty strong Main Street feel downtown that kind of dead ends into the Caltrain stations. Right. Um, you look at Walnut Creek, who just, you know, I believe it's Mesa Rich owns them all out there, did a huge renovation, you know, of a outdoor mall but still a fairly traditional mall feel before and now it feels a lot more upscale um it's just really nice environment to be in an easy place to be with families uh and and i think that you know for a while everyone was saying oh it's all about the city the city the city city all these millennials want to live to the city they never want to move to the suburbs well really in reality that's about life stage of course you graduate college and you want to move to this high energy environment with great bars and restaurants. But, you know, at a certain point, you know, you want to transition to maybe having more space or maybe you value your time more. And so the convenience of having a parking space right in front of the grocery store in the suburbs becomes much more important to you. I mean, whether whether you're married with kids, with family or not, I think that your values over time change. And what we're seeing now is that's still the case. People kind of, especially with with COVID and people moving out of the city and and that sort of space in your home, space in your yard became really important, but they still want the amenity of the more urban downtown. And so trying to figure out how, what I like to call the densification of the suburbs or the urbanization of what was traditionally the suburbs is a challenge. It's not easy. And you think about the El Camino corridor up and down the peninsula, and that's a really great example of where it's just lined with old strip centers. 
that's just too much retail. You know, you have more and more vacancy over the years. And a lot of them. It's not, have been good. It's not pretty either. It's, no, not, it's not that attractive. Right. But y- you have these well-established communities um, that live in single family homes that have been living their life a certain way and have a certain perspective of their community. And, and they still want to go to that grocery store with the parking space right in front. And so, you know, developers come in and sort of see opportunity to add housing, which we really need. We all know that we're in a housing crisis throughout California, throughout the Bay Area. Um, But the densification of these more suburban shopping centers, um, there's a push and pull there. How do you sort of continue to meet the needs of your existing customer, but you're meeting the needs of the larger sort of Bay Area demands and That's something that I think about a lot. And I think it just comes down to when you're in retail, you need to put your customer first. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at site planning, exactly that strip centers along El Camino, trying to figure out how can we make the existing customer still feel like they know how to come here. You know, they know where to park. They know how to shop for their groceries here, but still meet the goals of every other stakeholder, be it, you know, the city, the developer, you know, the the larger housing demands and housing needs. It sounds like every multifamily developer, like developing <laughs> in San Francisco. How do I make this new without like ruining what's already there? You know, the existing kind of, right? I mean, because you got constituents. Yeah. Right? It's like the gentrification of retail. Yeah. And, you know, you have also the push and pull of traditionally retail produces sales tax income for cities. Mm-hmm. And, the less sort of retail that you have, you know, that's kind of a scary thought because housing puts a demand on city services, but you aren't necessarily, you know, um, sometimes you're losing the the sales tax from the retailers. And, you know, that's going to happen no matter what. Um, If you don't, if retail doesn't keep up um, with today's customer and today's trends Mm -hmm. and the stores end end up closing, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't help anyone, right? Like no one wants vacant retail. So you kind of got to figure out how to balance those two um, demands. And sometimes that means we don't need as much retail. You need you need perhaps less square footage to have an equally productive store from a sales standpoint. Um, you don't necessarily need uh, a Chestnut Street or a Santana Row or a Hillsdale Mall in every single city. Um, but you do need... I think high quality productive retail to provide the amenities to the neighbors and to the stakeholders. Um, and, and we are, I think you said it perfectly in the beginning. I think this is probably the most creative asset class because we're in a challenging space of figuring out how to satisfy many, many, many different stakeholders all with different goals. How's the capital flowing into it? I mean, do people get scared away? <laughs> A lot Great of times, question. <laughs> creative people have to be, you know, artists live in like the, uh, they don't live in the prime areas. They got to live in like the, the outskirts of town because they can't afford the rents. How's it? I mean, the most creative people oftentimes have to be the scrappiest or is that yeah. what's happening in retail? You know, um, I think over the last year, it's been really tight. It's been tough because no, no one knew what was going to happen. I, I, everything shut down. Everything closed. I mean, the only thing that stayed open were, were essential needs, grocery stores, pharmacies who all did very well, by the way. Um, restaurants closed where everyone started cooking at home. You know, you still need your prescriptions. Um, there's something to be said about the grocery anchored shopping center that 
um, from an investment standpoint, really does survive the cycles of the market. Um, you know, you you sort of start to move beyond that into the more discretionary or maybe the lesser located locations of real estate, and you know, not um, if if you could if you could find a construction loan, you know, the terms probably weren't great. I think things are slowly starting to loosen up from what I've heard. Um, to be honest, I was at Regency Centers for seven years, which is a publicly traded REIT um, and really good operator of over 400 properties throughout the country. And so, you know, we were able to kind of work our way through the last year um, with luckily very well-located real estate, really successful tenants. Um, you know, now at Balboa, we have, we're on our second fund and we are only about 30% invested in that second fund. Um, so it feels really good to be on the side of we can transact. And so we definitely took advantage of that over the last year. And I think we closed on about five properties um, awesome, when yeah. no one else was really transacting in the retail world. Um, so, but change is coming quickly, you know, and, and people are dying to get out. So we'll see how that does sort of translate to investment decisions moving forward. Yeah. I guess if you had capital and you, you know, it seems like, yeah, it's uncertainty, I guess, but also, it could be a lot of upside there. Right. Right. If you're a buyer, if you want to look for some sort of maybe distress type of asset class, kind of go into that one and trying to, if you can operate it correctly and hire somebody like yourself, <laughs> the wizard to figure all this stuff out. I mean, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I'm looking through your background here too, just on LinkedIn. <laughs> you got, you got a pretty amazing background. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's people listening to this who probably are figuring out like, wow, this sounds like a pretty exciting opportunity or not opportunity, exciting job. Like, all right, maybe can you tell us a little bit about what you do? What is your, what is your role? What do I do? Um, great question. Um, right now I, I like to say I'm, I'm doing a lot of R and D. Um, so I well, eat a lot of eating at restaurants, <laughs> potential tenants. I get it. I know I've been there. I know all about this. Right. Right. You got to know who your, who your tenants are. Definitely. You have to be a customer first. Like I said, be in the shoes of your customer first. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say I became much more fashionable and my, uh, I became much more of a foodie since I entered the retail. Yes. World. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so my particular role, I, I basically am, am heading up and starting to build a development group at Balboa Retail. And what that means is, um, in the very traditional sense, I, I would be the person that goes out, identifies a piece of land, a piece of real estate, and says, I have a vision. I think this should be housing. This should be office. This should be retail. Um but you also then have to go look at what the city has, what we call zoning and land use and see what um, the city's vision is for the site. Do they want it to be housing, office, retail? Um, and I sort of start figuring out who all the stakeholders are. You layer onto that since I'm in retail. I have certain tenants that I, I think should be at that site and I sort of need to understand where do those tenants want to be? What are their growth plans? And I start to piece together the vision and the business plan for how to execute what that vision is. And so um, the very earliest, it means identifying who the potential tenants are, determining their interest, obviously understanding you know, what kind of sales they can do, um, therefore what kind of rent they can pay, um, start 
site planning, working through the city process, which is the entitlement process and getting the project actually approved, um, getting construction plans. Developed. How is that? Is it people, I mean, housing obviously is like everyone wants housing, but how are people townships feeling about having more retail or having retail or different retail in their townships? I, I mean, going back to what I said earlier, they, they would love to see more retail that generates sales tax. Um, and, and, you know, jobs are another way that, that cities can sort of generate income. I think that having the right jobs to housing to retail balance is sort of an ongoing struggle. And in the world of retail, retail generally follows housing. Um, and so sometimes it is a little difficult where you can go to, you know, maybe a suburb on the outskirts that doesn't yet have that great grocery store just because they don't quite have enough housing. And so the grocer can't see the sales growth. Um, they can't justify operating a business there. And so that's a little bit of what happened out in the East Bay, kind of out in Dublin in the cycle back in the early 2000s. They had a huge master plan for what they call the East Dublin area. And then the housing market sort of started taking a downturn. Construction started slowing in 2006. Obviously, everyone knows about the housing crisis in 2008. Then the markets blew up in 2009. Nothing really got built for a few years. So fast forward to 2011, 12, coming out of, of that downturn, no retail had been built to actually serve the majority of the housing that had been built in the previous cycle and was starting to be built again. And so that was the person in place project, actually. Just timing was such that um, we were able to get through the city approvals process really quickly and get that project built really quickly, you know, because we were coming out of a recession to meet a demand that was really strong for quality retail. You're smart. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> you, do, you do this for a living. You know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, uh, they like to say developers are jack, jack of all trades. So I tend to joke, I know a little bit about a lot. But you can talk a good game, Missy. <laughs> um, so your background I, I, is, I mean, is in civil engineering, correct? Yeah. Yep. Which I think is pretty cool. My sister is uh, 24. And she's a civil engineer and she's trying to kind of, she's working on an engineering firm, which I think she's trying to figure out her, her path. That's, you know, maybe not a long-term path for everyone. Um, so, that I mean, mean, a lot of different things. I mean, civil engineers, even in, in that, in of, of itself, they can take a lot of different paths. I have right, to my, take... my dad's a civil engineer. I mean, he's, okay. he builds power plants in like remote areas of the world. It's, wow. that's. <laughs> he has a lot of way uh, cooler than what I did. <laughs> he has a lot of big, heavy jackets because he's up in like very cold places building things. Um, yeah, I mean, can you kind of take us like through some people who are like some people are out there probably listening, figuring how do I become what Allison is? Like, how do I get there? Like, can you kind of take us through your path and maybe some of the skill sets that you think are necessary? Well, it started in seventh grade. Really. <laughs> No joke. I um, it, It's really funny story. So both my father and my stepfather were in construction. And so I was kind of surrounded by it. Oh, and nice. in seventh grade, I had an art uh, project to take a random building and turn it into a house. And I think I did a little like floor plan for how to turn a lighthouse into a home that someone lived in. And I was gung ho, I'm going to be an architect. And my, you know, no offense to architects. I love them. A huge part of me sort of wishes I went, I went that path. Yeah. Um, Very nerdy, but my family though. was like, no, 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 no. You want to be an engineer because you're good at math and you're good at design. So go that path and then you can make your decision. And right then and there I said, okay, sure. 
who does that? Yeah. I don't know. Um, but then I, I did. I ended up getting a civil engineering degree from UCLA. And I went to work for a firm called McCann Somps out in um, Pleasanton. And mm. I did land development engineering. So that was my first exposure to developers. And our clients were landowners, you know, families that had owned these huge ranches and farms forever that, you know, saw, oh, wait, we can build housing here. Um, and so my very first experience was in designing these master plan communities. And by designing, I mean, grading, you know, downhills into pads for houses, designing the storm system, the sewer system, the water system, all in the streets, uh, the stormwater yeah. quality detention basins. And what I loved most about it was I could point to something and say, I did that. You know, it was very mm. like tangible and very cool. Um, what I realized pretty quickly was that I didn't want to be behind a computer my whole life. I wanted to be out in the world, you know, talking to more people. And I did want to be more in the big picture, um, big idea side rather than kind of the detail design side. But what that, I think, experience has helped me the most with is I do have the ability to sort of see the forest through the trees, as they say, mm. and speak the language of all the consultants that are doing the design for my projects, the site planning. And, um, you know, the other part of being a civil engineer was that, you know, we did take projects through the entitlements with the city. So I learned that entitlement and that approval process with cities as a civil engineer. Um, as I mentioned, housing crisis, 2006, 2008, was about the same time I realized I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, but obviously developers were not hiring. They were letting yeah. go, they were collapsing. So I went and I did construction consulting uh, for KPMG in their advisory mm -hmm. group. Mm -hmm. The joke there is when I interviewed, she goes, have you ever applied to a big four before? I said, what's a big four? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, big four accounting firm, you know, Deloitte, E&Y. I'm like, sure, great. I just want, I want to stay in construction. Do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I another great- I had a buddy that did that, like, yeah, for during the recession too. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was there for about, about six years. I took a little hiatus to go to grad school, um, but learned a lot about construction contracts. And I learned a lot about how owners who are spending multi-million, you know, billions of dollars on these projects, um, but don't necessarily understand the business, what types of controls they need to put in place to make sure that they manage their projects from a schedule and a budget and a scope. Um, standpoint. So lots of bridges, lots of hospitals, schools, really wow. large projects, but good exposure. Um, that's probably where I learned how to see the forest, right? If I, if I saw the trees as an engineer, I took a step back as a consultant. And that really just translated to, I, I wanted to actually go be the owner. I, I wanted to be on the side where I had the accountability and I got to make the decisions. And so I found myself in grad school at USC and got a master's of real estate development to sort of tie it all together bring the business and the design, learn the finance. I didn't know what a cap rate was when I started grad school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I had a lot to learn and it was a great program. Um, you think so going, getting that, getting, cause there's a lot of people yeah. out there who are engineers who are like, oh, I want to get, how do I get over to the principal side and become a developer and do investments or something? And it's, it's not that easy to do that. Cause not every, company wants to take it some well, but not every companies want, all right, I need somebody who's already looking at it from the ownership side, not from like mm -hmm. the consultant side. So do you think going to grad school helped you kind of convince these firms that you were, they should hire you? I think that out the gate, uh, most real estate companies stay very lean in the development team. Um, 
you know, even when I was at Regency Centers, there was never more than two of us. And for a while, it was is really just me um, in the official development role. So for starters, there are not a ton of job openings in that world. But what grad school um, did for me and the reason I chose the master's of real estate development instead of just an MBA or whatever is I knew I wanted to be in real estate. I knew I wanted to go back and work for a developer. Um, and it was very focused on real estate. And they also do a really good job at, at providing a very well-rounded education. So you take finance, you take design classes, you take econ focused on real estate, um, you take finance classes that are focused on real estate, and you learn to underwrite every asset class and every different type of market. And so by the time you come out, um, you know, I felt pretty prepared to sort of go any direction I wanted to. And honestly, I stumbled into retail. Um, but How'd you, you, know, yeah, I, you, you just, that was the one that hired you or something, you know, I have to give credit to USC for this one too. <laughs> it never. Was, never. No, it was, and this is coming, you know, I went to UCLA for undergrad, so I am a very oh, conflicted yeah. soul, a Bruin and a Trojan. Um, but no, when I moved back to Northern California and Regency had an opening for this role, uh, the managing director for the West Coast called up USC and said, hey, do you know anyone? And she called me and said, hey, do you want to do retail? And I thought, you know, that sounds really interesting. The number of stakeholders, it's multifaceted, it's creative. Sure, count me and I'll, I'll interview. And so now here I am <laughs> figuring out how to turn retail properties into not retail, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, are you turning it? I mean, what about turning? I saw something just one this morning about, I don't know, it was California about rezoning or like the, there's something going on now where they're turning retail into housing and there's like, they've loosened up the rezoning restrictions or something like that. Like, is that something that you guys are looking into? Like you might have properties. I don't know how it works, but maybe some retail owners have properties and, and then they're like, holy smokes, like now it's much easier to turn this into housing. Maybe that's a better, uh, best of use for this property. Maybe we should start becoming a multifamily developer too. I mean, is there talk <laughs> of that with different retail companies? Yeah, I mean, instead you of just, do instead of just selling see, it instead of just selling right. the property to a developer. You do see, you know, a lot of retail developers look, looking at doing that. And, you know, I think that Federal Realty, um, who owns Santana Row, was one of the first to do it with Santana Row. And they have a handful of projects back on the East Coast where they did it early on. And um, now they're doing office down in San Jose, too. And, and so they've sort of recognized um, and learned over the years how to do it and be successful at it. You see Center Cal looking to get into it as well. I would say that um, where we are right now in the market, surprisingly retail is making more sense on a lot of these properties, even though it's zoned for housing and even though we need housing. Um, it's just, you know, construction costs are so high right now. It's But, th but that's the case in retail too. I mean, it's the world we live in in California, but especially the Bay Area. Um, but that is exactly what I do. I look at every property that we own and I look at, is this zoned for housing or something else? And what is the market for housing? What are the rents? What is the cost? And I sort of underwrite every scenario, including keeping it retail. And keeping it retail often means, okay, like we, this needs a facade renovation. This needs an upgrade. Um, this could be a different grocer. It could be something other than a grocer. It could be more restaurants. We don't have enough restaurants here and come up with that business plan. And then we make the business decision on which path to execute. Um, sometimes that means we'll do it ourselves. And sometimes that means we'll sell it. Um, but we 
you know, my job is to understand where the highest and best use and where the value is. And if we do execute it, then it's to work with my team to do the redevelopment. Exciting. It's yeah. cool. It's an exciting Fun. time to be in retail. I love it. Um, well, Allison, so far you've kept your cool. Oof. But are you ready for the hot seat? is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Yeah, Julio. Thank you for the birthday. Pre- that was my that was Julio's birthday present to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd sing for you, but you don't want to hear that. You're the best, Julio. Thank you. I always say I wish I had that music drop when I said that. Pump me up. Um, but... You ready for the hot seat? Okay, we're on the hot seat. Here's Here the go. hot seat. Here we go. Um, any books that you recommend? It doesn't have to be retail. It could be life. It could be business. It could be real estate in general. Do you do any reading on the subject that you would recommend or not I recommend? do. You know, the two that I'm going to currently recommend have nothing to do with retail or real estate, but, but they do have, I think, a bit to do about the state of the world that we're in right now. Um, one that I read... Uh, within the last six months was um, Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. She also has Dare to Lead. They're really great books, but it's about sort of how to bring humanity back to the workplace. Um, And there's something that has become a personal mantra for me. It's this idea of, of a strong back, a soft front and a wild heart. And it's really learning to be. Dude, I just heard her on uh Dan Brown or Dan, whatever is 10% happier podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's she's great. Um, and and that one kind of braving the wilderness is all about learning how to belong everywhere and nowhere at the same time, but really belonging to yourself first. And then that helps you show up for others better. I listen to her podcasts. Um, I, I think she's wonderful. And I think I love that idea of bringing humanity back to the workplace. I think it's really important to just continue to sustain. The second one I'm, I just started reading is The Power of Now. I'm sure many people have read it. Um, but personally, I'm wanting to get back out in the world and socialize and go to dinner and do all these things, but it's not easy. We haven't been doing it. And I sort of find my anxiety builds a little bit as I have more business meetings and more social stuff and I'm out and about and around people and I'm overstimulated. And so I'm working on how to sort of recenter myself and, and be in the now. And so far, so good. The power of now is a good guide. Yeah. Power of now. The power no, of now. Now, no, now. <laughs> I've read, I think I've read that book. Um, Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually listening. No, I'm, I'm listening to that book. 
Oh, perfect. Audio, whatever. Audio, audible. Um, audible. Podcast recs, besides the one you just mentioned, are there any other ones? Is there any like specific to retail that you that you that you've ever listened to? Yeah, you know, um, going from a publicly traded REIT, you know, to a fund that has different capital structure, I've been starting to listen to the Trepwire just to sort of re-educate myself about commercial real estate. Um, I think Leading Voices has some some great people on there every once in a while. I've been listening to yours for a while. I definitely know. Thank you. Of course, I love hearing about some of these really creative you know, companies and these founders that you've been interviewing on my drive, you know, to and from LA every couple of weeks. Um, so those, those are the real estate ones right off the top of my head. Non-real estate, I love Revisionist History by Malcolm yeah. Gladwell. And I gotta yeah. say in his first season, there's one called The Good Walk Spoiled about golf courses in LA, but really oh. it's about Prop 13 California real estate tax and it is mind blowing. His whole everything he does, I love. I don't know if but I heard that one. I've definitely highly recommend that. that. I, I listened to that uh, podcast. Yep, a He's good great. walk spoiled. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, what impact does your real estate have on the world? Whoa, hot seat right Big now. Question. I told you, you start sweating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really think the big opportunity for retail is is to create community gathering spaces and, and we can serve the community in a bunch of different ways. And that's through providing daily needs um, like the like groceries and, and pharmacy and entertaining experiences. And I think creating comfortable, inviting, warm, welcoming places for people to come and gather and re-engage with their neighbors is really important. And I think that's the big opportunity for retail right now unrehearsed that was a great answer uh what advice would you give to your 20 year old self care less about what people think yeah no kidding right yeah and trust yourself Brene Brown <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah I think um you know, 20 year old, would I, was I in college? Yeah, probably. I, oh, I be 20, you know, 22, 18, whatever. Well, what I like to say is I did not have enough fun for how terrible my grades were in college. I should well, you have the hardest, ma- you picked the hardest major you could pick. <laughs> I lived with a guy who was an engineering major. He did not go outside. In four years. Yeah. I could have had more fun. I really could have, because it turns out at a certain point, if you're good at what you do and you love what you do and you have passion for it, people don't really care about your GPA after a while. I shouldn't say that out loud, but have fun. Enjoy it. Be in the now, right? Power of now. There's um, a theme here. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, you're a, a big boss now, SVP. <laughs> what What do you look for? I mean, I'm sure there's people out there like who are maybe starting their career. Um, transitioning into career, maybe look, you know, looking for a new opportunity. Like, what do you look for when you're hiring people? You know, I know you're not speaking on behalf of Balboa, but like generally, like what kind of people do you like to work with? What do you look for? Like, if you were to give advice to someone who's looking for a new opportunity, uh, like what what would you say? Um, well-rounded. And I'm sad to say, I can't remember which podcast it was I listened 
to you, but at the very end, you know, they, they talked about the idea of a generalist versus a specialist. And I do think that this world tries to steer too many people into specializations. And we've ended up in a situation where we don't have enough generalists, you know, but you kind of, you do need to learn a little about a lot to be a generalist, but still be a specialist to a certain extent. So I think that is the biggest challenge is trying to find um, talent that can see the big picture. Even, even if they're not yet the generalist, like having the ability to take the step back and get out of the weeds and see the big picture. I think that's really important. I think that um, just a couple of words that come to mind, creative, confident, capable, but humble, know what you don't know. You had a bunch of C's there and you just went I humble. I did. <laughs> and then humble, right? Like I think humility is important when, when you know what you don't know. And you're willing to raise your hand and ask and recognize it's okay that you don't know everything because we're all here to learn. I'd be bored if I didn't still have a lot to learn. Um, and and so being willing to ask the questions and being willing to recognize that you don't know everything goes a really long way. Well, Allison Crabtree Warner, SVP at Balboa Retail Partners. Thank you for your time. Thank that you. was awesome. It's been fun. Thank you for asking about retail. Thank you for tuning in to the Impact Real Estate Podcast. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button and share it with your network. Follow us on social media at tbg.realestate. Have a great day.